0: Hi, Dr. Ellsberg. Nice to have you with us today.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here. Um,
0: on, last week, last Thursday, you and about 500 other individuals gathered in Lafayette Park to offer your protest against our current military expeditions in Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and our policies in general in the Israeli-Gaza-Palestinian conflict and other parts of the world. Three things that stood out to me. One, There was virtually, unless I missed it, but I checked the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, the Los Angeles Times. I did not see this highlighted at all, nor on their blogs. Secondly, would it not have been important to show the difference between those in our media, such as Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly, Glenn Beck, uh, and others? Mark Levine, who constantly talk about why we need an ever-expanding military-industrial complex, ever-encroaching um, violations <laughs> excuse me of our national security state upon our private lives, the suspension of habeas corpus, that all this is completely acceptable. The Patriot Act, the Homeland Security Act, the thousands of secret agencies, most of them Private contractors, the Washington Post exposed last year, even they say no one in government knows what all these agencies are doing, how much redundancy there is. But it would seem as if once you create a bureaucracy, it stays forever, and then it just becomes self-fulfilling. But all of them have something in common. They all support the perpetual idea that our greatest fear is terrorism and that there is no limit to what they will do militarily. Or the invasion of our privacy, in order to protect us. And if you suggest, and lastly, if you should oppose this, a Bill O'Reilly, you're un-American. You're either you're either us with our troops, or you are anti-American, and you're with the enemy. And then the media has not been supportive of WikiLeaks, and yet, unless I miss something, what WikiLeaks did in exposing the truth of our lies, about how we lie, about our policies, then WikiLeaks was not a whole lot different in exposing the truth about what was hidden than what you did when you exposed the documents called the Pentagon Papers that showed us our true uh, interest in Vietnam and and what we were doing that we did not know. And that was a seminal moment because it it refocused our attention between the official story we were given and the lies we were uh, expected to, to trust in and the truth. And that caused me and a lot of other people to say, hold on a second, you've been lying to us. What else are you lying about? We're not going to support these lies. Today, the media, with rare exception, and the talking heads that support it, And the Republicans and conservatives, if you came out today with what you did then, I believe you would be treated just as they're treating Julian Assange. They would ask for your death, imprisonment. They would try to put you in jail. They would not want to know, and the American public, especially Bill O'Reilly, would not want the American public to be trusted with the truth. And that's what makes him such a remarkable hypocrite. That here's a man who is enormously popular, and yet... He refuses to look at the truth of what we're doing anywhere and couches it all on the idea if we don't fight them over there, no matter what it takes, and give them all the support, then we will wake up one day with a Muslim in bed beside us and, you know, and threatening us. Your thoughts take us through your feelings about why we become passive, why we're not protesting, why the media is not engaged, and why only 500 people showed up for an event that should have had 500,000.
1: Well, as you can guess, I agree with everything you've said, so I don't know how much there is to add to it for me. Um, It is, I think, a, a central myth of our policy at this time is that our wars in the Middle East serve to protect Americans at home, to save American lives. And I think this is false, but the claim serves in the eyes of Americans to justify Virtually unlimited expenditure and loss of foreigners' lives, and uh, we haven't seen a limit placed on the number of American li- American troops' lives. Uh, they've been relatively small compared to other conflicts so far, which is one factor, no doubt, in the in the low protest. But I'm not sure that uh, Americans wouldn't put up with quite a, with even a higher level. Uh, if they continue to believe, as, they, as they're told, that these people are saving American lives at home. Now, that's what President Obama said to the troops, and of course it was broadcast to the country, when he was in Afghanistan. And one can sort of forgive a commander-in-chief from, for saying to people in the line of fire, uh, you're doing good work and you're protecting your families at home even when that's not true, that they're protecting. When I say that I think this is a myth, I'm saying that I think that the uh, hostility that's caused by the very presence of those troops in these Muslim countries as occupying troops, and the people that they kill, especially the civilians, the so-called collateral damage, but really also the lives of people who are resisting our presence there. The uh, The killing that we do over there, I think, creates more people ready to risk their own lives to kick us out and to punish us, even kind of revenge in the suicide bombers. And uh, generally, uh, an unwillingness on the part of the population to cooperate with us, which would be hard to achieve in any case since we're occupiers, but uh, pretty much closed off by the hostility caused by the the damage and destruction we're actually doing over there. So I'm saying that it's our very presence there in the the combat that our our troops are sent to do and do do that uh, is exacerbating the problem of uh, the harm that they face and and harm at home because it ultimately creates risks of suicide bombers or whatever, who would would be willing to wreak damage here. In other words, we haven't had a 9-11, though some attempts have been made, and those attempts have actually been described at the time as having been motivated precisely by what we're doing in the home countries, and not only in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan and in Yemen, two countries that supposedly we're not at war with, uh, and are not occupying and yet we are conducting combat operations in both those countries and uh, both of them have been mentioned by prospective suicide bombers over here as the motivation so the public is accepting this cost uh, the damage uh, in general and everything goes with it the torture and the rendition and the surveillance of Americans at home because it's supposedly uh, contributing to our safety here when in fact I would say it's doing the opposite doing the opposite and to say that is to say that the cost is not legitimated by anything uh, at all there are no valid interests national interests that we have here that are, are are advanced by our presence and occupation of Afghanistan or Iraq now another myth I would say is the idea that both of those have a foreseeable End to them that we can see the horizon there, and uh, in, a, in a time not too far off, when we won't be occupying either of those countries and won't have bases there. People don't focus on the base issue uh, specifically, but they should, because I think that in fact the plans of the Pentagon and the White House are for the U.S. to have bases manned by American troops as well as mercenaries into the indefinite future, and by that I mean a time scale of. Uh, generations, not just years, and not just decades, and not just a few decades, but 40, 50 years, 100 years. I think um, bases in that area are not only in the contingency planning, I think we're counting on that, basically. Uh, there's been some recent uh, news just the other day, actually, that the strength of uh, forces hostile to our occupation, the al-Sadr's group politically in Iraq, might actually shift that to a point where the Iraqis do demand that we get out of the bases. Uh, and I'm struck by the notice that although President Obama has said over and over, oh, we'll, all our troops will be out, and the implication being our bases will be out, uh, by the end of 2011 in Iraq, In fact, I doubt if there's any planning for that, whatever. That's gone on. And what these stories have brought out is that we've really counted on, quote, flexibility on that deadline, meaning indefinite, an indefinite stay there. And uh, and this idea that we might actually have to leave Iraq is a very new one and not one that's going to be accepted very, very easily here. I think uh, great pressure will be put on whatever Iraqi government emerges here to change. Their minds on that issue, and if they don't, uh, there'll be pressure to replace them. Actually, because I think we uh, we want those bases, there. Our government does, but the, foreign um, uh, influence in the in the oil-rich region in general of of the world. In Afghanistan, there's there isn't oil directly in Afghanistan, but it borders on, uh, oil-rich regions that used to be part of the Soviet Union: that it stands, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, the others. And, uh, there's questions of pipelines, but also of operations from Afghanistan into those areas to influence, you know, to increase U.S. influence in the area. So, um, uh, coming back, as I said, I think that, uh, one, one myth is that this all serves American safety, which I think is flatly untrue. And second, that it all, it, it's only temporary and that the cost and the casualties are going to go away. Uh, to uh, that implies, for instance, uh, the belief. I, I don't think either of those are true, and uh, the notion that uh, we're going to be uh, stabilizing Afghanistan really is a, a color for, uh, a code word for saying, well, we we think that our presence of our bases and our troops will be accepted in Afghanistan by Afghans indefinitely. There's 2,000 years of history that speak against that. Uh, they've never, never accepted foreign occupation, and they are very organized very well against it. Uh, Afghanistan, I had to learn something about it lately. I certainly didn't know much as an American about Afghanistan a few years ago, even a few years ago. But um, uh, what seems clear there is that uh, it 's not a society that 's organized for great national projects and uh, huge you know national cooperation very much they 're really organized for one thing on a national basis, and that 's expelling foreigners, expelling foreign invaders and they 're very good at that and as the Russians found out, and as the British found out before them, and Genghis Khan and Alexander uh, going way back uh, discovered so that hasn 't changed, and the idea that uh, I think when Petraeus has actually talked to Bob Woodward in his book, is quoted at least by Bob Woodward as saying that he thought this is the kind of war that you fight on all our lives and even our kids' lives. Well, that may look all right to him. Uh, He may not mind the idea that his children and perhaps his grandchildren are fighting in Afghanistan, but uh, the rest of the country should take notice from that projection. and Do we really want to keep spending $100 billion a year in order to strengthen, with the main effect of strengthening the Taliban? That's what we're doing. The Taliban relies on uh, Obama's escalation there and the the troops that we put over there for its recruiting and for its strength. They were discredited by their time in power, and their only basis for coming back as a national force, mainly in Pashtun areas, uh, has been the need, uh, the desire of the people for leadership in a fight against foreign occupiers. Uh, Why are we providing those foreign occupiers uh, as the uh, counterpoint to the Taliban, the basis for for their rise? There's no good reason for it.
0: I appreciate those insights. Thank you for that. Two other issues, if you would, please. One is... I'm doing a major film now called Poverty, Inc., and I'm filming all over the United States. And I'm mainly filming the new poor as compared to the historic poor, the uneducated people down in Alabama and Mississippi and Louisiana and Appalachia, my home area, versus the new poor, educated people who are out on the streets, who are living on people's couches. But a disproportionate number of those people are former vets. And right now we're filming all this week and next week in tent cities in Northern California and Sacramento, Southern California. And unless you go to a tent city and actually spend a day there, you can't appreciate. The city knows they're there, but they provide them no water, no sanitation, no place to take a shower or bath, no place to cook. And in bad weather, it's terrible. And then you find that... At nighttime, especially when it's cold, is when you see something that would be out of a horror movie about after dark. In outcome, the people who have their shopping carts filled with their possessions, a lot of vets, and they'll go to a a 24-hour uh, laundromat, because it's warm, and they'll and one guy does his laundry and he folds it all up neatly and he puts it in garbage bags and puts it in there, and he brings out this little tiny burner and uh, where he can hook hook uh, heat up some soup or some beans. and then he goes in he washes uh, his silverware and puts it back neatly, wraps it up. and he says, "I never thought when I was in the military." And then when I got home from the military, that I would be out on the street. But the conflicts, the, the the taking of lives, the constant pressure and more that you don't hear about. That Bill O'Reilly and other people that are warmongers, he said, never talk about. And he said, then you have to live with a nightmare. It doesn't get out of your mind that you've shot someone. You've killed someone. You've seen innocent people hurt. And he said, in Afghanistan, you'll see children in the middle of the winter with no shoes freezing to death, starving to death, all because of our being there. And he says it's impossible to live with this and be a conscionable person. So he says he's on the streets. He's alone. Uh, some of the vets meet on, in certain locations where they can. one of them can stay up uh, for three hours at a time with a knife just to protect them because they get beaten up or they get s- stolen from. And he says you would never believe how many veteran women... Are raped and killed. You never hear a thing about it. It never hits the paper. And I'm thinking, gee whiz, if Herolto uh, and and the other people Glenbeck, are going to, you know, praise our gallant brave vets, why don't they take an honest look when they come back? And where's the wh- where are they? Where's the Bill O'Reilly's? To give these people home sanctuary and mental health care and spiritual guidance and help them reacclimate, there's zero on that. I just see gross hypocrisy in this. I'd like your opinions of that place.
1: Well, you're, you're asking, of course, you're describing a, a terrible situation for our poor in general, especially with this recession. But uh, I take it you're focusing on the veterans in particular who come back and are not Yes, uh,
0: it's it's the. How can you conduct a war $100 billion when everyone can be adversely yeah. affected, but especially the vets?
1: I've been astonished by that uh, for a long time. I was a, uh, a Marine from '54 to '57, and I benefited from the the GI Bill. It was still still operating then. It helped me uh, in my college expenses when I came back. And, of course, that was crucial after the Second World War to, in a way, the transformation of the uh, educational opportunities in the country, the, the ability to G.I.s of all classes to go to, con- to, go to college. And uh, so I just assumed that veterans in general were, and, and in general, I, my former wife worked at the VA, and I know that the general care, level of care, was regarded as pretty good in, uh, in those days. But... Uh starting really in Vietnam, if not earlier, I don't know about earlier, but I've been amazed at the uh, willingness, for instance, to um, put it another way, the resistance to investigating things like Agent Orange and their effects on the troops. And it turns out earlier than that, the effects of uh, nuclear testing on the troops that were in the vicinity and the radiation that they absorbed uh, it seems as if nothing more than the desire to avoid paying for their hospitalization, paying for their uh, uh, care, has kept the military, the Pentagon, from even investigating whether this radiation was a problem, whether the Agent orange was a problem, as it's clearly turned out to be, or now we could say depleted uranium, if something hasn't been investigated nearly enough or dealt with. Uh, so, in general... The uh, the callousness toward the people that we uh, applaud so much in wartime, our brave troops, the callousness toward their care mentally, especially, but also physically, when they get back, is actually amazing to me. It's uh, it's uh, a, I think rather a large phenomenon. I have a feeling of man's inhumanity to man, uh, so-called inhumanity, what we call inhumanity is actually, turns out to be broadly, not just in this country, but a very human quality. Inhuman to, to imply that it's not human to act that way is, is almost mis, is misleading, I would say. It, it amounts to the, it, it's based on the premise that human is a synonym for humane, and that turns out not to be true. They are not synonyms. And being humane is one way of being human, but being inhumane is at least as common. And uh, it's just particularly striking when you see it applied to the very people that we put forward as uh, exemplary and as our heroes, uh, that we wouldn't uh, take care even of them just for cost reasons is uh, shocking.
0: The other part of my issue has to do with the misguided perception that we have that we are liberators and bringing democracy and freedom To these countries, when we have had over 150-year history, in the name of democracy, freedom of bringing tyranny, corporate, special, multinational interests to exploit the poor and the natural resources. And when you ask the average person in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in Pakistan, they will tell you they don't want Americans there. Because they see how corrupt we have allowed their systems that were already corrupt to be. We're massive amounts of money. If this occurred in the United States, it would make Bernie Madoff's theft seem small by comparison. And yet you don't see a single person being held accountable in the United States for the transfer of money to Karzai or Maliki Uh, or or uh, Chalabi. And yet, the people there see that their governments are not working on their behalf, except maybe in the major city. It's all self-serving. So, (laughs) excuse me, how in the world are we bringing democracy and freedom when we refuse to acknowledge it because it would mean our program has failed? We refuse to acknowledge the humanitarian crisis we have created, and we refuse to acknowledge that while we are spending money we do not have and are borrowing from China and Saudi Arabia and Brazil and India... That Americans, by the almost a hundred million, are now slightly above, at or below the poverty level. They cannot afford their medicines, their their food, their utilities. Many because they don't have the money for all that yet. They're not given any attention as if they're not a part of the equation. And the last thing is, why is it that so many Democrats and Republicans will look at the idea that there's a crisis in what we do? Uh, to a Gulf War vet and yet the moment we want to make a corporation like Monsanto or Dow that produced Agent Orange, responsible, suddenly were anti-corporatists, were we're interfering in the free market process. I see this with Sean Hannity, one of the biggest hypocrites on the planet, where he refuses to ever take the side of the average person if it means going up against one of the multinational corporations and how much profit they've exploited, even when people have been hurt from what they've exploited. Your thoughts, please. (laughs)
1: Well, uh, there's two things you're pointing to there, I think. One is a, a third myth, if I can add to the things I'm talking about here, uh, is that the U.S. is a benevolent force in the world in general, and specifically in what used to be called the third world or the underdeveloped part, or what could pretty approximately be called the former colonial colonialized areas. Uh, that uh, were underdeveloped by efforts of uh, a lot of European nations. Is a good book with the title "How Europe Underdeveloped Africa" by Walter Rodney. And um, uh, in those general, generally poorer, less industrialized areas, um, the, the truth is that, America, uh, that the belief that America stands for democracy everywhere is uh, is not. Valid does not apply in those areas. Uh, to say that the U.S. supports or democracy uh, in any real sense at all in the third world, the former colonized areas, is mistaken. Uh, we do tolerate or uh, work with democracy in, say, Western Europe and the industrialized nations generally somewhat. We're not necessarily opposed to it. But these former plantations, as it were, Uh, We generally, we, I mean the government and the corporations, uh, like them run for the interest of our corporations pretty much, American corporations, exporting and making profits there and extracting oil and raw materials, and it's much easier generally to, uh, to exploit those countries with the aid of corrupt dictators than it is with uh, legislators that feel some responsibility constituents in that country or that tolerate unions or uh, have welfare programs of any kind and, and put any, any obstacles to the taking of profits out of the country. So we want compliant governments, and generally that means undemocratic governments, including, even if they're not Form, well, formally dictatorial, including governments that are corrupted by us, that do our bidding for our cash, including military-run states that rely on our aid to their military and our arms sales, and so forth. So on the one hand, I say that's, uh, Americans generally don't understand that. I didn't understand that till well after uh, the Pentagon Papers trial, and I did a lot of reading, and became aware that Vietnam was where all that was true. Was uh, was not an aberration; but it was characteristic of our policy. And what was different in Vietnam was that we were being resisted violently, which generally we weren't, and uh, that that made it a war and, and brought it to attention. But in other countries, uh, the reason, when I said earlier, we're we're so widely hated and not merely disliked, but in countries like Pakistan that we rely on, hated by a majority of the population, is um, part uh, partly. Our occupy, our uh, killing of Muslims, fellow Muslims, in various parts, and operations in their own country, but also the fact that we maintain very corrupt and, and oppressive governments because it serves our national and particularly our corporate interests to do that, and that we do it largely in large part by kickbacks and corruption and bribery, as well as by coups and, and interventions of other kinds. So. Um, to understand our policy and, and the resistance to it in the world, you have to understand that aspect of it. Now, the other side, you were just talking about the general corporate influence. <laughs> I think it's never been more uh, clearly summarized than by um, the new, the incoming head, I think, of one of the uh, economic committees in Congress. I should have his name at my fingertips. Maybe you know who. Uh, who it is but who said just last week that his understanding was that the regulatory agencies and the government were there, and he in the in the Congress were there to serve the banks? Did you see that quote? Yes, agreeing, I did. Yeah. Do you remember who it was? I don't. I don't. Know. I, I do not I should keep that one in mind. It's such a great quote because uh, it's like the uh, the famous quote of. Uh, a guy named Johnson who, uh, not President Johnson. Oh, God, my memory is failing me here. But anyway, he was coming in as the, uh, head of the Defense Department, as Secretary of Defense. Um, you know, it's not, it's not Louis Johnson who he replaced, but who famously said that, uh, he saw that. What was good for actually the way he put it was what's good for the u s is good for GM. He was coming in from being president of GM, and uh, it was usually and vice versa he said, and people made the logical jump, and they quoted that usually as what's good for GM is good for the country yeah. but uh- that is the underlying belief in the corporations, and there's of course back and forth between the corporations and their their Wall Street lawyers and their Wall Street bankers. Uh, of, of the major corporations,
0: Dr. in and out government
1: position, they they uh, they make the position, take the position. It was uh, another John Nicholas Johnson, who was a commissioner of the uh, Federal of uh, the FCC, Federal Communications Commission, an unusually good guy, who once said that um, he said the problem is not that businessmen violate the laws, though God knows they do. He said the problem is that businessmen write
0: the laws. Well, Dr. Ellsberg, we're out of time. Thank you very much, not only for sharing your thoughts today, but once again reminding us of our moral obligations that when we see a wrong, to speak its name and to show the confidence to stand up against us as you, Chris Hedges, many others did this past Thursday. Thank you, sir. I look forward to our next conversation. Thank
1: you very much. Thanks,
0: Brian. Dr. Daniel Ellsberg.